Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Um, glad you're here. If you can't hear me in the back, I'm sorry, because there are eight seats right here in front of me, <laughs> and I have no sympathy whatsoever. So if you ask for a repeat, I'm going to ignore we'll what you start say. Pointing to the seats. I'll just start pointing. So there are eight seats here. So just a re reminder, this is recorded. Spread the word. It's a good way to invite people to listen to formation in a casual way, to give them a glimpse into our style, um, and also the substance of what we of what we are about, where each Wednesday night we dive into scripture, tradition, and reason. Today is September 28th, which means tomorrow is September 29th, the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels. Interesting little history, the Feast of St. Michael has been on September 29th for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, um, likely due to the dedication of a church in Rome on this day connected to St. Michael, and then that became the, the feast associated with it. Um, the other archangels, Gabriel and Raphael, had their own feast days. The Holy Guardian Angels, their feast day is October 2nd, which is actually Sunday. Um, they had their own days, but then in the uh, liturgical renewal and reform of the calendar, all those were squished into one. So St. Michael and all angels, as opposed to just St. Michael. So we'll begin with the opening collect for that feast day. O everlasting God, who has ordained and constituted the ministries of angels and men in a wonderful order, mercifully grant that, as thy angels always serve and worship thee in heaven, so by thy appointment they may help and defend us on earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Before Father Luke leads us into Scripture, I just when you are in um, church on Sunday, um, think about and pay attention to how often there are references in Scripture and in the prayers and in the hymns to angels. I think we take them for granted. And even in art and architecture, um, there are, I forgot how many angels we actually have in the church, but at least five that I can think of off the top of my head um, in the church building. But you also know the Sanctus, therefore with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Um, it really is everywhere. A little tidbit about the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. Some of you have heard this before, but um, and we'll talk about this maybe um, when we do the going away party on the 26th of October. You remember this, where we're going to get together and plan our funerals and talk about all this sort of stuff. <laughs> So one of the things that, that's really, um, what the church has given us, a powerful teaching um, tool, is colors and rituals for burials. And you know, for adults, it's traditionally been um, black or violet. You saw that with Queen Elizabeth. Remember, all the clergy had on black coats. For children, however, and this is why I think keeping that tradition is actually important, for children, you would not do black or violet. You would do white. For adults, you would do a requiem where you are praying for their repose. You're praying for their rest. You're praying for the Lord to bring them um, closer and closer to Him as they go from strength to strength. For children, you do not do requiems because if they're of a, a in the small children, of course, because they have not yet received that age of responsibility 
for their actions. They're, they weren't sinless, but they, they had not yet received that mantle of, that burden of responsibility. And in the church, and we did this with Finn Doss, by the way, who's, who's the last child, and hopefully, God willing, the last child we'll ever do, of a, of a young kid, three years old. Um, we had a small processional cross with a short, uh, with a short staff to symbolize the shortness of their life. And they didn't have to carry the cross very long. You know, I mean, just tiny little things that may look odd, but then you would not do a requiem, you would do a votive or a special liturgy for the holy guardian angels. And the reason is, is because the gospel for the holy guardian of angels comes from Matthew's gospel, chapter 18, verse 10, where there's this line where Jesus says, do not despise these little ones, for I tell you that their angels look upon the face of the Father in heaven. And the 1928 Book of Common Prayer for the burial of a child basically takes the votive mass for the holy guardian angels and then represents it. And it's beautiful. And if you've been to the Arimathea burials, you've heard it all. Um, but all of that is centered around um, the traditional liturgy for October 2nd, the holy guardian angels. So these angelic beings, we need to move beyond schmaltzy paintings and bad movies, which is typically our wheelhouse when we're going to think of, um, actually, before we get in, let's, let's think for a moment. Let's go ahead and clear the air of the immediate Hollywood or literary images we have of angels. I'm going to go first with Cary Grant. I'm going to go second with Nicolas Cage. What else you got? John Travolta. John Travolta. That was pretty quick. <laughs> Clarence. Yeah. Yep. yep. Awful theology in that movie. I love that movie. Awful theology. What else? What else? Movies. Well, Books. Christmas movies have angels. Yeah. yeah. Right. What, what are they like? Well, they're, they're sitting here on a mission, you know, from, from in, but, but then they, they take the, on the body of a person, and then half the time they end up falling in love with somebody and leaving being an angel, and they get to have their life here on earth. And then, but then there's like the, the angel that is coming to you know, oversee them and see that, that they do the right thing. Sometimes that happens, but, some, but they always bring good and change and love. So I think there may be four categories. I'm going, I'm spitballing here. Four, go ahead, go ahead. Della Reese. Della Reese, yeah, yeah. Touched by an Angel, yeah. yeah. Michael Landon, hello, yeah. right? Yeah. I think there are probably four categories of uh, angels we see in, in Hollywood and maybe in literature, but I haven't read so much. Let's see if I can get them. There are these, there are the angels that are a low class trying to get to a higher class. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? That's Clarence, right? Yeah. To get, to get, get wings. your wings, oh, to get yeah. your wings. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you also have the ones that would be, um, this is an odd one, of a, of a mortal becoming an angel. Yeah. Right? Was that was that Michael Landon? Was Michael in Highway to Heaven? I think was Highway he. Highway to Heaven, yeah. Was he, was he a regular man who went in? I can't remember. So, but you have where there. Victor French, yeah, yeah, Victor French, yes. The other one would be the angel who's in heaven but wants to come to earth and be mortal, right? That's the third one, and then the fourth one would be the nasty mean angels, the demons, right? Um, yeah, everything from ghost to. Um, all kinds of other movies. We're going to just clear all that out of the way. Right? None of those have any kind of biblical theological foundation whatsoever. And the difficulty is so much of our understanding of these things are formed by what we have watched on television, good entertainment. Listen, um, The Bishop's Wife, I was talking about it today with Cary Grant as, um, as um, the angel, one of my favorite movies of all time. 
It's awful theology. I mean, to think that the heavenly hosts are hitting on your wife is a bit of a, you know, Dudley, the angel, is a bit of a, you know, creepy thing. Especially if they look like Cary Grant. I mean, what, right? That's what the movie is about. It's creepy. It's a great movie, though. <laughs> on that note. Um, I, I think part of the hard part about pushing back on some of these cultural ones is we don't actually have anything positive to offer in their place. Um, some of that is lack of descriptions in the, in the Bible or in the scriptures, and some of it's just we don't actually talk a lot about what are the real characteristics we get of angels. So we'll start with the Bible. We'll get into reason and tradition. Um, Scripture, we'll look at Daniel 12, Revelation 12, and then uh, I'm going to talk about Psalm 91 as long as you can stand it. Um, and I'll explain why as that kind of transitions us to, to demons. But we'll start with Daniel 12, um, which is one of the many, many visions in Daniel. And we're kind of mirroring it with Revelation, mostly because Daniel's um, apocalyptic writings, kind of this uncovering something about the world, not necessarily not necessarily fortune-telling, but more so kind of peering behind the curtain onto the, some of the things that we don't always get to see. Um, that's kind of what's happening here. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'll read the first few verses and then the, the, the last few verses of this chapter. So this is Daniel 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people, shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish, such as ne has never occurred since, nascent, since nations first came into existence. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever." So right off the bat, we kind of get this glimpse of something that will happen in the future. Um, Michael is often depicted as an archangel with the scales of heaven, judging the right and wrong. So this is kind of a glimpse into that. Michael, you know, stands there and kind of judges who's written in the book of life and who's not. Um, and so this is where some of those depictions of Michael with scales come from. We also see him with a sword, sometimes one in each hand. Um, trying to think of the depictions that we have, I think, are all with a sword, right, in our, in our parish. Um, we have one in our nave. We've got one um, down in Gribben at a little prayer request box for our officers. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where we get that depiction of Michael with scales, kind of making the judgments at the end of the world. Then I'm going to skip to the end. Um, and if you have anywhere that I'm skipping over that you want to jump in, feel free. But the chapter ends with this. From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that desolates is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Happy are those who persevere and attain the 1,335 days. But you go your way and rest, and you shall rise for your reward at the end of the days. Numbers in the Bible always have a meaning. It is not always worth your time to try to figure out what they mean. The numbers here we'll see match up with Revelation. There's, um, this is where you can, uh, if you're not too careful, you can all of a sudden become one of the people who tries to predict the end of the world. And not, not worth your time because we don't know the answer. Correct, correct. Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, you'll see, you know, televangelists or something say, this is the end of the world. I've added up all the numbers in Daniel and Revelation, and there's a 45-day gap, and that leads to this on the Mayan calendar. <laughs> I promise you, you're not, you're not going to find an answer there. They do have a meaning. They're in the scriptures. They are, you know, revelation from God. But you're not going to find some hidden mystery for the end of the world there. Um, but let's, let's pause there before we go any further. Do you have anything to, to comment on, on Daniel's vision here um, or those few verses that I read? I think um, just more definitions that I failed to lead with. Let's just talk first in, about what words mean. Angel, mm-hmm. angelos, messenger. So if it helps to understand what is the role of the angel, it's to be God's messengers in some form or fashion, and they communicate. And then you can look into the, the types of angels and then ask what do they communicate. The second thing I would just say briefly is to <coughs> Michael is the prominent one, um, and let's talk about what his name means. But let's first start with um, the other archangel that's not mentioned, the fallen one, Lucifer, from what you know, what does that name mean, Lucifer? Light bearer. Light, right? Um, what is that? Well, it means Lucifer was, in the beginning, was beautiful and light. And you can think about that for, you know, how many lumens does your light have? Or the, the Latin word lux, L-U-X. So you can see the same sort of um, um, root there. Okay, so what do we know briefly about what was Lucifer's problem? What did Lucifer want to be? He wanted to be like God. God. Thank you. Great answer. What does Michael mean, the name? So this is a little bit of a, of, um, a, 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 a way to unlock some of these things in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, in Hebrew names, if it ends with E-L, in the meaning is God somewhere. So Raphael, Uriel, Michael, Daniel, you go L, like El, El Shaddai, all that. So we know God is in the name. What does Michael mean? Jane, did you have it? He who is like God. Close. Who is like unto God? Do you see the interesting play there? Lucifer wanted to be God. Michael asks, who is like unto God? What's the answer? No one. But Lucifer is uh, uh, really bad. Really bad. Lucifer fell. And we'll see this in Revelation 12 when he fell. But that's the important thing to remember is that Lucifer wasn't created evil. Why? Because God doesn't create evil. Evil is the absence of good. And Lucifer, and this is a powerful way to sort of take the, the biblical story and then really stretch it out. Things that sometimes begin as beautiful and light-bearing quickly become dark. Yeah. And inherent in that is an interesting point about angels, that they are created with free will. They had the capacity to either obey or rebel against God. Um, they are like us in that way and very few other ways, but they were created with that free will. Can we move on to Revelation yeah. 12? Yeah, okay. Revelation 12. Other than, sorry, I hate being that person. This text, because I I hate it when people do it to me. This text in Daniel 12 is the first time we find any any reference to bodily resurrection in the Mm -hmm. Old Testament. So this is the this is the first and probably the only time I think so, yeah. we have bodily resurrection bodily resurrection in the Old Testament. 
So Revelation 12 has a lot going on. Wait, wait. Oh, I got a question. Yeah. Last week's lesson about the rich man and Lazarus, it said very clearly that Lazarus was raised up and the rich man went to Hades. Isn't that... New Testament. Yeah, sorry. I Old Testament. <laughs> he was testing us. So, so let me just say this. It doesn't mean there wasn't necessarily an oral tradition or thought. This is the first text and the only text in the Old Testament that speaks of resurrection. There's a difference between afterlife, you know, and all. I mean, we, we can mm -hmm. really, we can really um, split hairs on this, but in terms of at the end of time, bodily resurrection, this is the first and only Old Testament text. So Revelation 12, we'll get introduced to several characters, and I'll, we have not talked about who we think some of them are, so I'll be interested to, to hear both of our thoughts on this. But I'll read the first six verses, and we'll pause there. So this is, again, Revelation 12. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child, so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. I told you there was a lot of characters going on. So we have a woman and a dragon. Um, and we'll get to the woman in a second. But the dragon, a couple noteworthy um, points, uh, I think... This is one of the few places we get the horns description very explicitly, and I think that's where a lot of our depictions of Satan come from with his two little horns. Um, here it is ten horns with seven heads and seven diadems, but that's harder to draw, so we just kind of stick to a pitchfork and two horns. But we have this, this uh, dragon kind of waiting for this woman who has clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a head, a crown of twelve stars, about to give birth um, to a baby. And... It was not uncommon, especially in Second Temple, you know, Jewish context, which is what a lot of our New Testament is writing in, to have this idea of a demonic evil spirit that snatches babies. Um, demons, a lot of them dealt with pregnant women, dealt with infants, dealt with birth. Um, and so that, that kind of idea of this, you know, demonic figure, Satan, kind of ready to snatch this baby is not in and of itself that noteworthy, um, but the, the attributes attributed to the woman are. So, the woman is said to be, uh, had a crown of 12 stars. Now there's uh, a couple different interpretations of who this woman is, and we'll kind of get more descriptions here in a little bit. Um, if you ask, I think most biblical scholars, I think I'd be right in saying this, they usually see the nation of Israel as this woman with the 12 stars, the 12 tribes, giving birth to this, this son who is to rule all the nations, which is obviously Jesus. Jesus. Um, and Israel is kind of that 
you know, birth of Jesus. They eventually make their way. The son of David comes from the lineage of the, the tree of Jesse, and he is the, the king to rule all kings. I mean, that is kind of the, the context for Jesus is, is coming out of the nation of Israel. And you get another um, context. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. People make a lot of comments on exile. The people of Israel being brought into exile. We also get the child being snatched away and taken to God in his throne. Um, almost this trick pulled on the devil that as soon as he's trying to take the baby, all of a sudden he gets taken away to God. And there's parallels to the ascension there, the resurrection, that um, as Jesus dies and Satan finally says, you know, mine, I've got him now, he slips through his fingers and ascends and kind of shows that Satan has been powerless all along. So there's, there's a lot of imagery here. And I'll stop and let you make any comments if you want to before we kind of continue with the rest of the so chapter. So there's, there is um, one interpretation that the woman is the nation of Israel. What do you think the second interpretation is? The Virgin yes. Mary, right? Because if you, if you see this, it's clear. I mean, this is an inversion or a complete, not an inversion, but a completion really of Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15 is what uh, in the church we call the Proto-Evangelion or the very first proclamation of the gospel. You don't have to turn there, but I will turn there. Genesis 3.15, sort of think of John 3.16 and Genesis 3.15 if you want to think of two very good things to remember. Um, and John 3.15 says, I will put enmity, I mean, um, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And some of the old translations even said, she would bruise your head. Mm -hmm. So you have this, this, um, this foreshadowing in Genesis of what's happening in Revelation 12. And that Mary is, this is the, when you hear about in, liturgical devotion and an art of the coronation of Mary, or the crowned Mary. This is Revelation 12, Mary with the crown of, of 12 stars. And then they would also say, well, gosh, when she fled to the wilderness, when did that also happen after birth? Like to Egypt. Into yep. Egypt, yeah. Yep. So you can see these very clear connections um, there that are teasing out all these images. What may be a, an also a very faithful um, interpretation is both. That's, that's where I was going to go next. Yep. Sorry. No, that's fine. Yeah. I, I figured you would bring up Mary, and so I wanted to... You're right. Kind of, <laughs> I wanted to get the Israel in there, but I actually think the best way to interpret it is to see both. And I think the way you do that is you actually see the Virgin Mary as the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is a genealogical struggle toward this Savior figure, and who finally fulfills that? The Virgin Mary. And so I think we actually can see them kind of fulfilling the same prophecies. And so, I mean, later in the chapter, we see um, descriptions where the earth came to the help of the woman after the serpent tries to sweep her away with the flood. You know, images of, you know, the Israelites being prepared and saved through the flood. Um, and then, and this is where I think um, the Marian imagery really helps as uh, being called the mother of the church um, is often how she gets called is at the end of the chapter. It says, then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Who are those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus? Christians, believers, um, the church. And so we, we see this kind of image that after, after the dragon has kind of lost the battle, he's failed to snatch the child, he gets angry and gets kicked away, who does he go to make battle on? Christians, us. This, this idea of temptation and, and Satan tempting us 
um, we see here. In between those two stories is this little uh, extra story about Michael that you probably have heard before um, because it's where we get this idea of Michael as a warrior. It says in verse 7, In a war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then we get this proclamation of salvation, um, the good news contained in there. So that's important to remember, right? And also, just you don't, this is an aside, the letter of Jude, which is a short, short letter, also has a reference to St. Michael. Um, and there's a, there's a very obscure reference of Michael and the devil wrestling over the body of Moses. And that's in Jude's letter. So that's the third instance of mm -hmm. Michael being there at, at the end of one's life. Um, one thing I would make, comment I would make on this, if you think about all the great, again, let's go back to Hollywood, which is, which is, our, which is our most influential theological teacher. Yeah. It is. I'm not, you know, I'm not being funny. It's our it social it is. liturgy it really almost. Is. It really is. Um, I can't tell you how much of theology I need to gently correct that's formed out of some soundstage in California. But when you think about Hollywood, who is God's adversary, number one? So if you have good versus evil and God is good, who is, who is his adversary personified? The devil. the devil. There's no contest. Let me give you the best example. And I love this movie. Love this movie. But again, you can love a movie. This is what I tell people. The Cosby Show is my favorite show of all time. Bill Cosby is deplorable. Yeah. Both can be true. I love that show. I love Cliff Huxtable. I think Bill Cosby is deplorable. I love George Burns. He's a horrible theologian. <laughs> so this is, an, this is my childhood. The third Oh God movie. Do you remember it? Oh God, you devil. This is how I think this is. This is George Burns, this is the beginning of split screen technology where George Burns, when he was 109, played both God and the devil. Remember this movie? No, you need, you need to look it up. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm sure it's a classic. I mean, you know, but, but, but you had, they looked exactly alike. And so the, the theological message was God and Satan are equal. No. Equal. equal. They're not, obviously, no comparison. But in Hollywood, though, think about the forces of, of, of good coming from God and God wrestling sort of with the devil. There is, that is not the counterpart. The counterpart of Lucifer is Michael. Those are the two created archangels who wrestle. And yeah, there may be a little you know, you know, give and take, and that's a good Hollywood movie, but not God. There is no rival to God. But unfortunately, that's what people want to see in the movie. That's what the audience wants to see. Yes, say. of course. Yeah. Of course. We do, and 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 you're correct in that God is the source of all good, and then and Lucifer, Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent, whatever you want to call him, is given the um, personification of all that focus of evil. But they're not; those are not equal forces. 
Only one of them was created. Only one of them was created, and that would be Lucifer and not God. And so we have to keep that in mind, and that's why actually Michael, remembering him, is better theologically yeah. um, to, keep that, um, to keep that proper balance there. And sometimes, you know, especially the Halloween will be, it will be in our, um, on our televisions and, and decorating our doors coming up. Oftentimes I hear people say that belief in evil helps them believe in God. And if they, because they see evil and they see sort of the feelings of demonic in the world, then that is easier for them to now believe in the counterpart, which is uh, holiness and God. Okay, that's an interesting conversation. Because we have that conversation, let's not give God an equal to any created thing or uncreated thing because there's no equal to God. Again, what does Michael mean? Who is like unto God? No one, nothing. So Michael wrestles with Lucifer and casts him down, not God. I got a question about that where it says that he was hurled down and in my commentary, it says that some people believe that this is when Satan fell to earth. Mm -hmm. But in Job, God asked the devil, what are you doing? And he says, roaming to and fro about the earth. Mm -hmm. This is not chronological. Timeline is impossible to reconstruct. Um, And think about it. um, I mean, first of all, there, there are two ways to think about this. One is there is no chronological framework in the biblical text to even give us an ability to, to reconstruct any kind of timeline, other than to say that when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, there was the ancient serpent. So one would presume it happened before then. The other thing to keep in mind is... Well, that's what I always thought. Yeah. The other thing to keep in mind is, you know, this is sort of telling the story as to what happened, um, and it's very difficult to, to verbalize things that are beyond words. So you use images, and you paint mm-hmm. images. Um, the other thing is, if this happened outside of the created sphere, time has no meaning, right? So it's very complicated. So we should not get hung up on numerology. Yeah. What do the numbers mean? Because you'll, you'll, you, you can justify any kind of numerology. I mean, you absolutely can. The, chronologi- the chronology will be um, frustrating as well. Just to know that... Yeah. Lucifer was a created being because God, and the reason why that's important to remember is that God does not create evil. God is not the source of evil. Evil is the absence of good. God created all rational beings with free will. Why? Because to love is to give someone the ability to love or reject you. And so including the angels. And the angels are pure intellect, uh, pure spirit, and um, some, some for for. We, we could simply say, why would you be an angel and reject God? You can ask the same question about human yeah. beings. That's right. So we need to be fair about mm-hmm. that. The reasons why we, we reject God are probably similar to um, how um, angels do it. And there also is a lot of interesting theological speculation. Very important word, speculation. We don't know. Is that have how God so loves human beings really ticked off some of the angels. That's right. Like the Psalm one- 8. You know, you, no. you, what is man? You've made him a little lower than the angels. But you didn't, God did not become incarnate among the angels. That's right. God became incarnate among man, among human beings. Took on our flesh and not the angelic spirit, right? And so maybe they're like, why? We're better in every way. Um, 
except what they can't do. And this is the one thing. The one thing they're jealous of. This is the one thing that City of Angels was with Nick Cage and Meg Ryan gets right. And you see, Dennis, this is, this is the best theological depiction of angels that I've seen. You remember City of Angels, right? You remember Dennis Franz? Remember him? Remember when, when, um, when Nicolas Cage was having breakfast with, with um, Dennis Franz in the diner and he was eating every single thing mm-hmm. and he was looking at Nick Cage and goes, you ever had like pancakes? These are amazing. Yeah. Sort of sensory experience, bodily, you know, taste and smell and all that. Um, Nick Cage was asking Meg Ryan, what's a peach taste like? Right? Because we're bodily and angels aren't. And the... Spirit. prime example of that bodily experience is the Eucharist. Yep. And a lot of the early church fathers said the one thing that the angels are most jealous of is that they don't receive the Eucharist. They don't have that intimate connection with, with God. It's all, at the, end, at the end of the day, speculation. And what is speculation? Speculation is not making stuff up. It's prayerful people thinking critically. Um, holy people saturated in prayer thinking about things that we can't possibly understand. That's what we mean by speculation on this. Um, and that's what prayerful people have thought about when they think about life and, 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 and the snippets and images we have in Scripture and trying to make sense of it. So these aren't things that we can hang our salvation on, but these are things that have, these are, these are, are thoughts, again, by holy people saturated in prayer and faith that are coming to think rationally about, about um these things that we can't possibly understand this side of heaven. So before we move to tradition and reason, um, which will primarily focus on, on demons, um, we'll talk about exorcisms and, and Ouija boards, I want to try to give some scriptural context for, for demons. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage us to think a little deeply. I'll try to make it as clear as possible and as brief as possible. But I think this is a really fascinating example of kind of the scriptural context for, for demons and how um, especially the Old Testament was wrestling with these false gods. Because if we read the scriptures, if you read pretty much any, especially of the, of the Torah, it's constantly God warning about the false gods. Um, and you'll see, you know, the, the number one thing the Israelites constantly get wrong is mingling their worship with the worship of other gods. I mean, that is what they're constantly warned against. So... The Dead Sea Scrolls were a collection of scrolls discovered in a cave when a boy threw a stone into a cave and heard a jar break. And he you know, walked up there and found some scrolls and I guess told somebody about it. And they ended up being one of the most important kind of scriptural text discoveries that we've had in a long, long time. They had autographs, and not autographs, that's the original, but... Um, copies of all sorts of our scriptures and complete copies that were earlier than ones that we'd ever had before. It was a wonderful discovery. And in one of the collections, there was um, a group of apocryphal psalms, so psalms that we didn't have in our, in our normal Bible. They were, you know, called Psalms on Expelling Demons. The second one was called a Psalm on Trusting in Yahweh for Protection. And the third was an Exorcism Psalm. So there was, it was a group of exorcism psalms, psalms meant to ward off evil spirits. And uh, the first one, you know, we get snippets of. There's only a couple, a couple of phrases. Um, the second one is a psalm that says, Trusting in Yahweh for protection. It's attributed to Solomon. It's, it's titled the Psalm of Solomon. And the first line says, He will invoke, invoke, we're missing some words, the spirits and the demons. 
these are the demons and the prince of enmity, Israel, missing some, and then it says, hold fast to Yahweh. So it's clearly talking about this idea of demons and evil spirits. The third exorcism psalm, this one is actually attributed to David, and it's titled, Against Demons. Um, it says, an incantation in the name of Yahweh to be invoked at any time in the heavens. And we have more words in this one. It has phrases like, uh, who are you? Withdraw from humanity and from the offspring of the holy ones. For your appearance is one of vanity and your horns are horns of illusion. You are darkness, not light. Wickedness, not righteousness. The commander of the army, Yahweh, will bring you into the deepest shield. So it's I mean, really interesting exorcism psalms that we had never seen before. And there was a fourth psalm in it, and it was Psalm 91 in its entirety, just like we have in our Bible. And so scholars kind of started having to think, why is Psalm 91 with these exorcism psalms? Did we miss something here? It's a psalm I'm sure you all have heard. Um, it begins, You who live in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the 